The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. In your headlines, dreams come true for Disney. The stock rallies in extended trade after the media giant crushes first quarter earnings expectations and reports a surge in streaming subscribers. Wall Street falls for Bumble as shares spike on their New York debut with the online dating app now valued at more than $13 billion. Strong sales in China lead L'Oreal to a top-line beat, while online orders jump more than 60% as consumers turn to self-care during the lockdown. President Biden warns China will outpace the United States on infrastructure investment as the American leader gives more details on that extended call with Xi Jinping. Last night, I was, uh, I was on the phone for two straight hours with Xi Jinping. We don't get moving, they're gonna eat our lunch. And five stars for Mario Draghi, the former ECB chief, gathers enough support from Italian lawmakers to pave the way for a new majority government and is expected to announce his cabinet later today. Shares in Disney gained an extended trade after the company smashed subscription expectations in the first quarter. The media giant beat on both the top line reporting a, a profit rather than the loss analysts anticipated. Earnings per share came in at 32 cents, while revenue jumped to more than $16 billion. The two key areas were in focus, streaming and parks, with both outperforming expectations. Now, the parks division revenue dropped less than anticipated. It was down 53%, while the streaming business outpaced projections, growing to 95 million Disney Plus subscribers. So two ends of the pandemic spectrum, as we talk about those parks that have been closed, but then the pivot towards streaming as more consumers stay at home and consume content that way. Well, speaking to our U.S. colleagues, Disney CEO Bob Chapek spoke about the streaming services' strength. We've been especially pleased with the success of our direct-to-consumer business. And our recent strategic reorganization has enabled us to accelerate the company's pivot towards a DTC-first business model and further grow our streaming services. Disney Plus has exceeded even our highest expectations Disney early on worked out that trends had fundamentally changed a short term when it doubled down with its focus on the streaming business. Yep. It could see that trend very clearly, and I think that the writing was on the wall. You've got these amazing parks that used to be a number one destination for so many people around the world mm. suddenly shut. And even as you had an early glimpse that there might be a way out and you saw the park in China start to reopen uh, in the Hong Kong market, that was a, a positive, but then quickly you, know, you got to the assumption that it was not going to happen elsewhere to the same extent uh, across in Europe and also in the United States. So the focus from Disney, very dynamic, very quick, and I think that's paid off in these numbers. Yeah, I think there are a um, couple of interesting things about it for me. One is that the subscription model can be very successful. And increasingly, we've seen that obviously with Netflix and some of these other streaming service providers. But I think, you know, as you push 
that subscriber-based model up against a free-to-air advertising model, what is very clear is the uh, definer of success is effectively still content. And I think that's a very interesting message that continues to come through here for any of these rivals to Disney, for eyeballs at this stage, you have to keep investing in content. And that would just be the one sort of nagging doubt that I have in the back of my mind here because content is very expensive. And as we've witnessed in the lockdown here, people get bored very quickly. And when they see that the content is not being updated, they migrate away. So I think there's an interesting message in here about the success of a subscriber-based model when you've got very strong backing with content. If you cannot continue to invest aggressively in that, then I think you are at risk at, uh, of losing out over the medium term to very strong rivals here. Steve. Yeah, I, I, good morning to both of you. Look, I, I like Disney. I, I've always liked the product. I, I consume the product. I'm one of the 94.8 million, okay, so I hold my hands up as well. I've watched a bit of Mandalorian, not as much as most people out there. I loved Soul over Christmas, so I've, I've laid my cards out. My problem is you've got a three-pronged stool or a three-legged stool, a bit like us, really, a bit like us three. Uh, and whilst one leg can kind of carry on, we can get Jeff doing it if Karen and I were away doing other things for a while, and he would be magnificent. How long can that one leg of the stool uh, keep that the, the, the base uh, kind of uh, standing up? And this is my point, because the film studios are struggling. We all know that film studios are struggling around the world with social distancing, etc., etc. You can't travel around to locations very easily. It's really, really tough as well. And you can't have theatrical releases as well. I mean, I'm very excited about Black Widow if it can get to the cinemas and they are steadfastly saying it won't be released on Streaming Plus because it, they can make more money out of the, 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 the cinemas. And that's a real problem for them at the moment because the parks division is an absolute nightmare. Paris, Hong Kong, California shut, limited openings elsewhere as well. And the net profit of this company fell 99% to 18. So while I completely agree with you about streaming, I think it's great and where we go forward and how many we have, who knows, well, but it's clearly a great growth driver. The shares are only pricing in one thing, and that is the streaming activity. They're not pricing in those other two legs of the stall that I mentioned. And I'll just tell viewers, the shares closed at around about 190 bucks yesterday, give or take the change. That's double their low of March where they were trading some $100 as well. And what is interesting, even before this crisis, I go back a couple of years and I'm looking at the, the, their mean for the last five years was somewhere between a 90 and 120 bucks as well. So they've stormed ahead of that really aggressively to 190 bucks on the base of streaming when the other two parts of the model are clearly struggling badly. Uh, and therein lies the problem. Are they pricing this for one part of the business rather than all three? question i think if you just drill down to the basics you've seen when the parks have reopened that there was social distancing with the vaccine being rolled out does that change you know we saw some cdc uh, advice yesterday that suggested uh, if you come into contact with someone after you've had the vaccine who and they have covid you may not need to to isolate so that could be a game changer i think there's a lot of unknown factors about how a business will run post-vaccine world when you've got some level of herd immunity yeah i, I mean i i think we all think that the the parks will reopen and that won't be an issue. Um, just to pick up on Steve's point, will the cinema chains reopen though? Because I think two things you can, you can um, pretty much take to the bank here. People will always want to see live theatre and they will want to go to theme parks. Will they want to go back to cinemas after they've indulged in the streaming experience at home and everything that you get 
from a just at the click of a button opportunity to watch any content you want across multiple platforms. And it it's just feeds back into the, the point that I was making really about the structural shift here. I think content-based uh, business models are very idiosyncratic. It, it takes me way back to um, William Goldman, who uh, the, the great movie producer and writer, who said, no one knows anything when it comes to making movies. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Because if you, if you miss a couple of beats when it comes to uh, producing the next big hits, that's it. No one wants to watch you for a couple of seasons. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people will go back for the experience, won't they? I mean, I, I will certainly go back for, for kids' movies to the cinema. You go back to the cinema. Yeah, for an outing with my daughter, we'll certainly go back right. to the cinema. I'm not saying yeah. from a, an adult entertainment point of view, I may not go back, but I know others will certainly watch a very big hit. So they want the, the proper sound system and the proper screen quality yeah. on the big screen. I mean, you know, depending on your Wi-Fi, again, our streaming service at home is woeful. We keep yeah. watching a little circle tick around most of the time, right. which spoils the experience of a, a blockbuster. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sure my husband will be racing back to the cinema before I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all need a home cinema like Steve's exactly. got in his basement. I have a decent area of the home where we have a large sofa and a television, yes. Funny enough, it was my wife who had to go at me and said that the television wasn't big enough when I bought a pretty decent TV a couple of years ago. She's the one who wanted to go for the mega one, so I thought that was quite surprising. Normally it's the gentleman of the house who wants the bigger gadgets, isn't it? But I, I agree wholeheartedly with Karen, although not about the adult entertainment bit, I, I don't really get involved in that, but, 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 but I would definitely give back to my local cinema. I love my local cinema. It's, it's, for, it's an awesome cinema. It's a privately owned um, cinema where you can take a beer in. Remember that? Where you could take a beer in and go and watch a movie. Fantastic. Yeah, I think I think Karen was thinking ahead to the next story, actually, with the adult entertainment line, weren't you? Yeah, shall we push on? <laughs> yeah, Make yeah, a connection to that story. Let's, let's get on with a it. A Freudian slip, Karen. <laughs> a Freudian <laughs> slip at 6.09 in the morning. It's a family show, Karen. Well, let me just bumble on to Bumble, which has enjoyed a great first date. Shares soared on its market debut on the Nasdaq, closing over 60% higher. The popular dating app priced its offering at $43 a share, but the stock began trading much higher at $76. Bumble wrapped up trading with a market cap of around $7.7 billion. Speaking to our U.S. colleagues following the IPO, the CEO, Whitney Wolfhard, said the company will focus on expanding its paid services such as memberships and subscription models in the future. We are very committed to, you know, reinvesting in future monetization features and product offerings to convert a higher penetration of our customers to becoming paying users. We'll do this through a bevy of subscription services, higher tier, and other um, adjacent opportunities. Let's get out to Laura Zima, who is Associate Vice President Marketing Advisory at Minta. Laura, this is an interesting entertainment option as we talk about pandemic trends. It's hard to see how online dating has really benefited during a pandemic when it's very hard to meet up with people. What do you make of the launch of Bumble and how it sits in the marketplace at this point during challenging uh, conditions for uh, meeting up with people? Well, you know, it's been a really interesting year for online dating in general. And, it, you know, there's so much there's so much competition. The market is really flooded. And interestingly, when the pandemic started, we saw so many people turn to online dating apps for that lost connection. And certainly Bumble, to stand out, you have to have that unique value proposition. And Bumble's doing that. So they really led with women making the first move 
But then, you know, when you think of an online dating app, the success of your business is people aren't really using you over again or, or uh, using you in, uh, in fortuity like that. So expanding to other areas like friend networking and business networking, this is really a way that they're capitalizing on. People are going to remember that for that initial experience and then expand to other areas of their life into that strategy though because there are all sorts of other apps for, for meeting people i mean twitter linkedin some of the the more business friendly apps in terms of connecting with people it's hard to see people establishing friendships through an app i mean typically that's not the way friendships are formed in most western societies so i i guess i have questions about the business model being more than just a dating app Right, right. And that, you know, I think that remains to be seen a little, a little bit. They're certainly putting uh, all, you know, all steam ahead with their marketing. So we saw previously, there was a lot of emphasis solely on dating and really focusing on, you know, this idea of femininity and women making the first move. And now it's shifting to be more about good people are all around you. And so I think they're going to bank on the fact that you know, right now, we may not be able to see our friends that we'd like to see in person. People might be in a city where they're trying to network. Uh, so they're they're banking on the fact that people are going to want to get back out there and meet people, you know, beyond romantic relationships. I'm, I kind of think, I don't know much about this world. I'll be totally honest with you, Laura. But I find it quite interesting that this is one of the first female-led apps as well. And I quite like the sound of that as well, because I kind of find the whole world of online dating communication quite a murky, blokey orientated world. But I really like uh, what uh, is Whitney Wolf Heard is doing here by letting the women take the lead on this one. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, she, you know, she previously uh, came from Tinder. There was a very difficult separation there. And uh, just thinking about that space, each of these apps kind of have their own niche. So the idea that, you know, they really are practicing what they're they're preaching. And I think that resonates with a lot of their paying customers. Women, uh, you know, feel certain ways about how men are on dating apps. There's a lot of discussion about that right now on TikTok um, and exposing some of the behavior there. So thinking about, you know, you really have control here. Um, there's a lot that you can do to make the first move. But then we see that also reflected in their internal culture. And that's something that, you know, then as a woman thinking about other ways, you know, I want to network uh, in my professional career, in broader aspects of my personal career, I'm going to stick with this app and platform that has been good to me throughout the process. I guess, Lauren, I don't know if this is your forte, this next question, but this explosion, you've already answered, there's a plethora of apps out there. There's a really intense competition out there as well. Is this company really worth as much as it it, it has come across with a market cap of $13 billion and a higher valuation after that, given the fact that in 2019, Blackstone bought a majority stake for only $3 billion? I find it hard to see that in such a short period of time, one app is worth so much more. Right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I certainly can't speak to the valuation, but what I can speak to is their unique positioning in the marketplace. And when when so much of it is about swiping and the profiles that you complete on everything are so similar to go in with a unique value prop. And we, we see a lot of brands making very purposeful statements about their their identity and their business model. So making a case saying we are going to be there to help women and empower women Uh that is unique among some of the other value propositions that I see out there. Uh, can I ask you, um, Laura, about the challenge from Facebook here? Because Facebook already has an awful lot of information about people, and it's it's a, a, a useful way of matching lifestyles and people. Is there a risk here that, in the end, um, we find that these very big established social media sites 
actually can step in and start taking business away from these bespoke apps like Bumble? That's a great question. And, you know, I think uh, a year or two ago, ago, I may have given you a different answer. But I think with so many concerns related to data privacy, we see, uh, you know, a handful of apps, apps moving away from this very model. So it was very commonplace that when you set up your dating profile, the thing that you would do is you'd create it by uh, linking your Facebook or linking your Instagram. And now many apps are giving users the option to just create that profile from your cell phone because they don't want um, any, you know, data mingling going on. And can I ask you, Laura, about cross-selling and how other apps may get into the game here? I I note, um, as you've pointed out here, there have been tie-ups before between Bumble and Airbnb. Um, Mm -hmm. What what other opportunities are there then? Are we talking about uh, restaurant chains, um, florists, uh, all those other kind of businesses that may be associated with romance? Is there going to be some big tie-in going on here? Absolutely. So I think that's where we're expecting to see a lot of the innovation in 2021. And this really came during the pandemic. So here you have an influx of people turning to online dating apps for connection, only, you know, then you don't have the ability to meet up in person. So Bumble very wisely uh, at the onset of the pandemic last year, partnered with Airbnb to offer virtual dates. So something throughout the year that, you know, you could do a virtual wine tasting together, or you can um, listen to a concert together. And so obviously in this past year, that was to offset our inability to connect in person. Now, um, as things begin to open back up, that's not going to be a permanent case. The whole point of the app is that you're connecting, you're meeting someone that you're going to spend time with in person. But what will happen, we believe, is that virtual now has the opportunity to bridge that awkward in-between period where, you know, maybe you're on phone calls trying to figure out how to have a conversation. You're not quite sure if you want to meet up with that person uh, in real life yet. So virtual is a great way to sort of bridge that gap. And when so to your point, what we what we expect to see then is a lot of informa- uh, innovation when it comes to co-promotes with brands. So certainly you can imagine uh, a Netflix and chill partnership with Tinder or something of the like. But I think uh, certainly any any restaurants, um, beverage, uh, streaming services have the opportunity to curate these very special date nights and then also get their name out there as well. So we expect to see a lot of innovation there this year when it comes to virtual dates. And then potentially that even translates to in-person where, you know, you're getting discounts for uh, using your app at certain restaurant chains. Wow. Um, so much to think about there. And uh, just as we come up to Valentine's Day as well, Laura, thanks so much for feeding our imaginations here. Laura Zimmer, uh, Associate Vice President for Marketing Advisory at Mintel. Um, we've got to refocus. We've got to get back into the business mindset. Step away from Valentine's Day. Coming up on the program, Bitcoin hits record highs once again after more heavyweights like BNY Mellon and MasterCard get into the crypto game. Yeah, I've got Valentine's covered. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. Right, for more on the latest earnings stories, as well as Wall Street's love for the Bumble IPO, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. U.S. jobless claims fell to 793,000 on a seasonally adjusted basis last week, but came in above expectations. The latest filings remain above the peak reached during the 08 recession, but far below the record of 6.87 million at the onset of the pandemic. More than 10 million American workers now remain unemployed, Karen. A quick look at Bitcoin, which briefly hit a fresh all-time high after U.S. banking giant BNY Mellon said it would form a unit to hold, transfer and issue cryptocurrencies on behalf of its asset management clients. This comes after credit card giant Mastercard said it would support some cryptocurrencies on its vast network later this year. The rally has accelerated since Elon Musk's Tesla bought up to $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin in a filing revealed at the start of this week. Uh, so just drifting off the price this morning, down 1.5%. And two more rational parts of the market. Uh, this is what we're looking at on US equities. We did see a little bit of reversal of the day earlier with the Dow finished lower, but the S&P and the Nasdaq eked out fresh records. A little bit of a bounce, not a huge amount of direction, as you can see, which has been very similar to what we've witnessed all week. Investors have been buying back into the markets, but still cautious about the levels that they're buying at. Uh, so in terms of stocks that were moving, it was uh, 3M that had the most negative impact on the Dow. Microsoft, uh, NVIDIA had uh, the most positive impact. So technology in play and, of course, chips, as we talk about this chips shortage that's been roiling the auto industry, laptops and other big technology giants. Uh, let's take a look at what we're seeing on the Treasury market. There was a little bit of movement during the week around that inflation report that came out flat, but uh, then a slight recovery yesterday. The U.S. 10-year yield lifting back up to 1.15%. Uh, that's the level we're watching at this point. Asian markets, uh, many of them are closed for the Lunar New Year holiday. Uh, big celebrations last night and into uh, welcoming the new Lunar New Year. So uh, markets that are travelling today are the Australian market. And that's weaker trade. That is down six-tenths of a percent. The Japanese stock market also just drifting off a 30-year high with this uh, drop of 42 points or a tenth of a percent. So just a slight dip there. Some gains for the Nifty 50 again. Another quarter of a percent of the upside. New Zealand trades down by just over 1%. Deputy calls here in Europe. Uh, we did see uh, a gain yesterday. We managed to break a two-day losing streak. So the markets put on roughly half of a percent. But across the markets this morning, you can see we're looking a little bit soggy for the core markets and uh, flat for uh, some of the others as well, the Italian market, for instance. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.